0: their side about refugees being security threats or all muslims being security threats and the morals are, are really not on their side when we think about the complicity and the involvement of the u.s government in conflicts that are engulfing different parts of the world that are producing this massive refugee crisis
1: as we speak there is a secret so-called secret u.s war unfolding in the african nation known as niger you might have seen the story from a few days ago of a number of u.s military personnel killed in niger
2: if you believe that we shouldn't be putting puerto rico in more debt than they already are let me hear you right now let washington hear you right now if you believe that we should have helicopters flying items like supplies water and food to these rural towns let me hear you let me hear you let washington hear you
3: Welcome to On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And as always, we remain committed to airing the unheard voices, tapping into the grassroots that are working for social justice and change, even despite the corporatocracy, the plutocracy, and just the plain old crazy going on here in D.C., and we don't have enough time actually to do it. If we had the time, we would not talk about Harvey Weinstein or and the trauma faced by his many survivors. But we will talk about Patrick Harmon, a 50-year-old black man shot in the back and killed by Salt Lake City police. Videos circulated this week show that Harmon was running away when police officer Clinton Fox shot him after being stopped for not having a light on his bicycle. Or we would talk As we enter the final quarter of 2017, about the nearly 800 other people killed by the police, killed by state violence in the United States this year. But today we are able to bring you voices of Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican diaspora, which is suffering another kind of terror with their island in shambles, Many rallied on Capitol Hill on Thursday as the death toll rises and is really being obscured with some on the ground estimating that hundreds have died and are in danger of dying from preventable diseases with much of the island going for three weeks now without clean water and adequate food. We'll drill down further into the issue of environmental justice with contributor Michelle Roberts and talk to Gerald Horne about the world and us meaning the United States. So, as always, we have a jam-packed show, so stay tuned as we start with our headlines. Now, as many here in the U.S. and around the world are contributing to support the Puerto Rican people, cities and states across the country celebrated Indigenous Peoples' Day this week instead of the federal holiday named for the explorer Christopher Columbus. Here in Washington, legislation was introduced in the D.C. Council to rename the holiday Indigenous Peoples' Day. If the bill is ultimately signed into law, D.C. would join more than 60 other cities, states, municipalities in the United States that have made the change, including Minnesota, Vermont, Alaska, and South Dakota. Councilwoman Anita Bonds, who introduced the bill, said Indigenous Peoples Day would give us all an opportunity to, quote, recognize those who are truly here first, preserve their story, and give them a permanent place in history, end quote. Now, speaking of indigenous people, several states and the American Civil Liberties Union are filing suit against implementation of the latest version of Trump's Muslim travel ban. And there was a program in D.C. this week to explore the details of the new restrictions on which the Supreme Court refused to hear arguments two weeks ago. Chantel James has more.
4: The Institute for Policy Studies hosted a panel of experts on Wednesday to discuss the implications of President Trump's newest proposed immigration ban, which specifically targets people from majority Muslim countries. Dr. Maha Hilal moderated a discussion among panelists Hassan Ahmed of the HMA law firm, Rama Kudaimi of the Washington Peace Center and War Resisters League, Noreen Shaw of Amnesty International, and Nana Bernuto from the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. They explored the history of Islamophobic and anti-Muslim policy from the White House. They brought our attention to such nuances of Trump's Ban 3.0, as it's being called, that combine with systemic racism to negatively affect black Muslim immigrants. The conversation explored this administration's unwillingness to address refugee crises that have been created by the U.S. military-industrial complex around the globe. Noreen Shah expounded on this.
0: So at the same time that the Muslim ban uh, was extended and made into Muslim ban 3.0 and became this indefinite Muslim ban, just a week before Amnesty International had documented how, and revealed that we had documented how, a bomb that killed an entire family, everyone except for a little five, I think a five-year-old girl, that that bomb was manufactured in the United States. So the United States is manufacturing bombs. The government is signing off on the, several million dollar arms sales that occur all of the time. Those bombs are killing people, families in these countries that we're banning. And then we are saying things like this orphaned girl, if she wanted to come here, which I, I don't know that she does, but if she wanted to come here she would be banned because she is a presumptive security threat. The facts aren't on their side about refugees being security threats or all Muslims being security threats. And the morals are, are really not on their side when we think about the complicity and the involvement of the U.S. government in conflicts that are engulfing different parts of the world that are producing this massive refugee crisis.
4: From DuPont Circle, this is
3: Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. And also related to the U.S. and its relations abroad, this week a coalition of groups including Popular Resistance rallied outside the Sheraton in Pentagon City with a giant-sized Trump puppet to bring attention to the fact that lobbyists inside were discussing updates to the North American Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. Dr. Margaret Flower said that many of the proposals being discussed are the same as those opposed in the defeated Controversial Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty. Which critics called a massive global corporate giveaway or grab.
5: What they're basically trying to do with the NAFTA renegotiations is take all of the bad parts that were in the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership and sneak them into this renegotiation. So it's really about making NAFTA worse, not about making it better for any of us. And so these are things like the corporate court provisions that will mean that if corporations want to come in to a community and their water create you know fracking whatever and or just exploit you know poison whatever and community members want to stop that or pass laws to say no then these the corporate corporations can sue the government in these corporate courts and they tend to win or have such high damages or penalties that communities can't afford those and so they just give in so it's corporate bullying and we don't want that so really, if people were upset about the TPP or TTIP, you should be just as upset about this agreement.
3: Trump has talked of scrapping NAFTA, which he says hurts U.S. workers, while many economists say that all workers in all countries have suffered in the United States, Canada, and Mexico, while multinational corporations have gained from the deal. And in culture and media... Athletes continue to protest racial injustice and police terror at stadiums across the country. And a petition has gone viral asking Vice President Mike Pence to pay back the at least $200,000 he spent just so he could be seen walking out of last Sunday's game between the Indianapolis Colts and the San Francisco 49ers when some players knelt during the anthem. USA Today reported that Pence's planned action or stunt was actually used as a fundraiser for Donald Trump's re-election campaign. Opening in theaters today is Take My Nose, Please. It's a documentary that is revelatory, voyeuristic, funny, and sad. It lays bare the obsession among American women with plastic surgery, most often to modify their noses. In a few interviews with patients and doctors, plus archival footage and history combined to tell a story of how even among white people, there are aspirations to erase ethnic traits, to nip, tuck, and cut their way into an homogenous normal standard of beauty in our marketing and entertainment driven culture and the director Joan Cron is 89. And finally, rapper Eminem's video and performance for the BT Hip Hop Awards, excoriating Trump, has also gone viral this week. This is a clip.
2: It's like we take a step forwards than backwards, but this is his form of distraction. Plus he gets an enormous reaction. When he attacks the NFL, so we focus on that and instead of talking Puerto Rico with gun reform for Nevada, all these horrible tragedies, and he's border would rather cause a twitter storm with the Packers. Then says he wants to lower our taxes. Then who's gonna pay for his extravagant trips back and forth with his family to his golf resorts and his mansions?
3: That was Eminem performing on the October 6th BET Hip Hop Awards. The video was viewed online by 23 million people so far this week. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, more news you can use and that you don't want to miss with Gerald Horn. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and you just heard voices from the celebration of Indigenous Peoples Day held at the Baltimore American Indian Center on Monday, October 9th. And now, as we segue to international affairs, yesterday a coalition of groups held an impromptu rally in front of the White House to oppose any scrapping of the Iranian nuclear deal by President Trump. Trita Parsi of the National Iranian American Council spoke to the crowd.
2: If this deal is destroyed, if it is killed... We will go back to a situation in which the United States will be on a path towards war. It is a choice that he is making. Just as much as George Bush made a choice to go to war with Iraq. It was not a war of necessity, it was a war of choice. And every member of Congress today that would go and vote in favor of sanctions following this decertification should know that that vote will be as consequential for the future of this country, for the interests of their country, as well as their political future, as their vote was, and giving George Bush authorization to go into Iraq in 2002.
3: And now I'm joined on the line by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I want to start with this increasingly dangerous situation with the Iran nuclear deal. Despite support for the deal by members of his own party, and reportedly even from some of the generals that he's surrounded by, Trump seems to be pushing ahead to decertify the deal if he hasn't already, as we speak.
1: Well, let me also point you to a recent lengthy op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which fundamentally calls for a regime change in Iran. And it would not be beyond the bounds of imagination to consider that this is the ultimate goal of Mr. Trump. The op-ed suggested that there was a split in the U.S. ruling elite in the 1970s with Jimmy Carter and the Democrats, according to this piece, winning detente with Moscow and Ronald Reagan and the Republicans pushing for overthrow of the Communist Party. And we all know what happened. The Communist Party was ousted from power. And so now, apparently, the Trump faction of the U.S. ruling elite is pursuing this very dangerous game of seeking regime change in Tehran. It's even more dangerous because it will not be followed by their allies in Western Europe, not even Great Britain, for that matter, and certainly it won't be followed by China and Russia. It's very perilous, but this seems to be the course that this country is now embarking upon.
3: Wow. <laughs> it seems like there are consequences of like biblical proportions here, and uh, we certainly have to keep a watch on that. The remaining or sole ally, I suppose, would be Israel. Well, even
1: there, I'm sure you saw the recent article where Ehud Barak, the former prime minister and hawk, an Israeli military man, has counseled the United States to not decertify this Iranian nuclear agreement. He feels that decertification would be dangerous for both Israel and the United States, and I think he's correct.
3: Like I said, we're certainly going to keep watching over that issue in the coming days and weeks. And in the meantime, the, I guess, was it twice a decade, the Chinese Communist Party is meeting and making some really big moves in the country to kind of change the way things are done?
1: You are correct. As a result of this Communist Party Congress unfolding in October 2017, you can expect to see the Communist Party and the government assert more control in private enterprises. Now, part of the consolation of the U.S. ruling elite, and I might also say some who are not part of the elite, who are just part of the U.S. left, with regard to the rise of China has been this idea that China was building capitalism and that U.S. corporations could benefit from the rise of capitalism in China. Uh, That's certainly been the case, although the estimates of how they have benefited have been wildly overestimated. In any case, even those overestimates are about to be constrained with this increasing government and party role in enterprises. This also casts new light upon what has been seen as one of the major U.S. victories of the 20th century. That is to say, the deal brokered by U.S. President Richard M. Nixon some four decades ago when he traveled to China to enlist Mao Zedong and and Lai in the effort to bring down the Soviet Union, which basically worked. But at the end of the day, it seems that the United States has just exchanged communists in Moscow as a presumed adversary for communists in Beijing as a presumed adversary, with the latter administering a gigantic country, which is not only on track to have an economy three or four times the size of that in the United States, but also increasingly is constraining and restraining private enterprise, which was thought to be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for U.S. transnational corporations.
3: What does this increased control look like? I saw one report that mentioned more involvement in their tech sector.
1: it's not only more involvement in the tech sector, it also involves communist party clubs having a foothold within all business entities not only chinese business entities but u.s business entities as well i mean u.s business entities don't allow communist party clubs in north america but they're going to be forced to allow them in china and then it's how china is shaping markets it's making a major investment in terms of electric cars and given the fact that GM in particular is so heavily dependent on the Chinese market that means that GM is going to have to ship even more of its investment into electric cars which also spells perhaps a not too bright future for fossil fuel corporations such as Exxon Mobil in other words China is not only reshaping the world, but it's reshaping the world under the aegis of a communist party that is determined to assert more control over the economy.
3: And what do you think are some of the trends they saw happening that disturbed them so much that they felt they needed to make this move?
1: Well, as the Cubans can tell you, if you allow private enterprise to gain a foothold in your economy... Inevitably, they will demand, if not require, political influence and control. And that could ultimately erode the political influence and control of the ruling Communist Party. That is one of the reasons why you see, for example, in South Africa, the ruling African National Congress, the way they try to foil that trend is by ANC leaders taking the lead in terms of Playing a dominant role in private enterprise. So, this is that every country ultimately is going to have to face. That is to say, are politics going to be in control or are economic titans going to be in control?
3: Well, I guess we'll definitely be watching that as well. And what is your little known news for this week?
1: This reminds me of what was called decades ago the secret U.S. war. In Cambodia of course it was no secret to the people of Cambodia the fact that US president Richard M. Nixon was raining bombs by the ton down on Indochina but as we speak there is a secret so-called secret US war unfolding in the African nation known as Niger you might have seen the story from a few days ago of a number of US military personnel killed in Niger this bespeaks the fact that hundreds approaching thousands of u.s. troops are being stationed in that part of africa supposedly they are involved in helping to wage war against the so-called al shabab in somalia due east and also helping to shore up french forces in neighboring mali and due west but in any case This U.S. intervention also bespeaks a certain kind of corruption because to the extent that the Pentagon can involve itself in the internal affairs of more countries, it can get a larger Pentagon budget, which means larger opportunities for corruption, not least on the part of U.S.-based corporations, but also U.S. military generals as well. Uh, There's going to have to be more investigation of this very unseemly development that's now gripping uh,
6: Niger. All
3: right. Well, um, in terms of corruption, I think probably many of the listeners to this show remember the pallets of money, pallets of cash sent to Iraq that disappeared, never to be seen again. So definitely, to the extent that we can, we'll have to follow the money and, and the corruption and just the fact that these troops are there and no one's really talking about it. And then speaking of the U.S. abroad, I think that you also had some insights into news out of Mexico. Yeah, this is The
1: New Yorker from October 9th, 2017, the article on Mexico. And they're quoting the insight of former Mexican President Carlos Salinas, who, as you know, left office under a cloud, to put it mildly. But he has some interesting things to say about Donald J. Trump and the U.S. presidential election that brought him to office. And this comment should be seen in the context of a deteriorating relationship between Mexico and the United States, particularly as news story suggests that the United States may not only be willing to pull out of the North American Free Trade Agreement, but to punish Mexico in the process. So according to Mr. Salinas, he sees Mr. Trump, quote, as an American throwback, That is to say, quote, we're finally able to see what the United States has always really been, a plutocracy and a military force with an ideological core, Uh, unquote. The United States, he went on to say, had never truly reconciled the two sides of the Civil War, those who favored slavery and those who opposed it. Quote, sure, the United States has always tried to present itself as a cradle of liberty, but it has always been a fractured land, And that's showing today in its attitude towards Mexican immigrants. Mr. Salinas also goes on to say, quote, that the election represented, quote, a last-ditch effort by a Euro-American group to institute the regulatory changes necessary to allow them to hold on to power for another generation, end of quote. Now, I thought this to be very insightful. What's even more tragic is that you will not necessarily find this kind of sharp analysis, even amongst some of the liberal commentators and pundits in the Washington Post. I'm looking at you, Eugene Robinson, and you, E.J. Dion, They would be very well advised to pick up the phone and call Mr. Salinas.
3: <laughs> well, I'm glad that we heard his words here today on On the Ground. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horne, professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, and his most recent books are The Rise and Fall of the Associated Negro Press, Claude Burnett's Pan-African News, and the Jim Crow Paradox, and also from Black Classic Press right up the road in Baltimore, Storming the Heavens, African-Americans and Their Early Fight for the Right to Fly. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. just tuning in this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther evaram and over the break we heard more voices from that indigenous people's day celebration in baltimore on monday the song that they're performing and dancing to was smiling by the northern Cree. Now on Thursday, the House of Representatives approved a $36.5 billion disaster aid package to help victims struggling to recover from a string of devastating hurricanes and wildfires. Only a portion of that funding will help Puerto Rico, though. And also on Thursday, members of Congress requested a formal audit of the death toll in Puerto Rico, citing concerns about the woefully underreported number of people who had died in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. The Intercept reported that New York Democrat Nidia Velasquez and Mississippi Democrat Representative Benny Thompson, the ranking member of the House Committee on Homeland Security, wrote a letter to the Department of Homeland Security on Thursday, which urged the agency to evaluate the casualties on the island and the accuracy of the government's methodology for counting bodies and report its finding within 10 days. Quote, it would be morally reprehensible to intentionally underreport the true death toll to portray relief efforts as more successful than they are, the letter stated. If, on the contrary, this information has benignly been muddled due to a lack of capacity on the island, then the federal government must work hand in hand with Puerto Rico's government to provide a clear assessment, end quote. Also, before the vote, activists and elected officials rallied on Capitol Hill. Here are voices from the Unite for Puerto Rico rally, beginning with Nidia Velasquez, Democrat of New York.
7: So that President Donald
8: Trump recognizes that Puerto Rico is facing a humanitarian crisis. That when 90% of the people in Puerto Rico have no power, no electricity, that more than 45% of the people of Puerto Rico do not have access to drinkable water, access to medical treatment. That yesterday or the day before, a hospital in Umacao lost its power. That people are getting sick because they're drinking water from streams. We need to recognize that this is happening in the United States of America because our fellow citizens in Puerto Rico, they are American citizens and there should not be a distinction between an American citizen in Texas, Florida, or Puerto Rico. When our men and women go to war to defend the freedoms that we enjoy in this country today, no one asks Puerto Ricans about, you know, what is your territorial status? They go and they fight and they love this country. And now we have to show up with the full force of the federal government because that is the most fundamental responsibility of the President of the United States. So, mañana, we're gonna pass a relief package. It's a down payment. It's a down payment, it's the beginning. But Puerto Rico has a long way to rebuilding and to recovery. So, we must continue our fight to get what Puerto Rico needs, and we might have to fight to get between 45 or 60 or 95 billion dollars, whatever it takes. We don't know the extent of the damages because we are waiting for FEMA as well as insurance company to make. A final determination but moody one of the predator houses said that the estimates go from 45 to 90 billion dollars so we're going to be there all the way one thing that we have seen in puerto rico right now is how humble how each one take care of their neighbors even when they don't have food to eat, they are all taking care of each other. So we don't have to be here fighting or making the case, these are our fellow citizens. They need our help and we must show up both in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Quiero decirles que esta es una lucha que va a continuar y que vamos a utilizar nuestro mollero político en los Estados Unidos. And they know it quite well, they know it quite well, whether we provide the resources that Puerto Rico needs to make them whole, or they will purchase a ticket and come to Florida or Ohio. But that should be an option, they should not be forced to leave the island. They love. Seguiremos esta lucha y yo me comprometo con ustedes como también todos nuestros colegas puertorriqueños y dominicanos de que estaremos dando la batalla. Puerto Rico, ustedes no están solos. And daremos esta lucha hasta el final, hasta que logremos Puerto Rico. And by the way, let's continue fighting so that we could repeal the Jones Act.
7: Mr. President, we don't need to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. With paper towel packages, we need you to put. We need you to put your pocketbook in the pocketbook of the United States where your mouth is. Help Puerto Rico. Another thing, please, Mr. President, don't say insulting things to our people. The American citizenship also exists in our territories. When it's wartime, you need ask these folks. The president didn't ask these folks if they were citizens. They sent them, because they knew they were citizens, and they gave their lives, and they gave them. So that you're not alone, that we're with you, that we will do whatever we have to do. Today, as Nadia said, we have a down payment. Tomorrow we will vote on it, but there will be more money coming in the end of October, perhaps November, certainly December, and we will make sure Puerto Rico is included in that money, not because it's a gift, because Puerto Rican veterans and other Puerto Ricans have paid for it over and over and over again. Que Dios me los bendiga a todos y siempre se recuerden de esto. El corazón nuestro es grande, la isla es pequeña. La isla cabe en cada uno de nuestros corazones. No la dejemos olvidar, no la vamos a abandonar. Y esa isla se va a levantar de nuevo y va a ser la isla que todos nosotros conocemos: Puerto Rico, la isla del encanto. Muchas gracias.
2: Al representante de la Florida, Darren Soto. Gracias. Nosotros sabemos por qué nosotros estamos aquí por respeto. Primero, por vidas boricua para reconstruir Puerto Rico. We are here for respect. We are here to save lives in Puerto Rico. We are here to rebuild the island. Now, I can tell you representing Central Florida and the Orlando area, we are with you we are with you and we saw when i went down to puerto rico two weeks ago no power no cell phone service people in rural areas like Utuado hadn't even seen anybody from fema they asked me when i landed there are you from fema because we hadn't seen anybody yet we see that the economy's broken down many of my constituents they still can't get in touch with their family members down there How many of you have family in Puerto Rico? Raise your hand. How many of you have been able to contact them via cell phone? Raise your hand. Okay, do we see what's going on here? And we know the damage. It's 70 to 80, potentially 90 billion dollars that it's gonna take to get the power back, to get cell phone service back, to get food and water back online. And so I was here today and I got to speak with leadership in both FEMA and the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security. And I heard excuses, not solutions. We want solutions, isn't that correct? We want dignity, isn't that correct? We want people to actually act rather than just say that they're helping out. We know what's happening on the island. And so I know a lot of you have come here today to help put together a Marshall style plan, a plan like how we built rebuilt europe american citizens deserve just as much if not better do you agree with me let me hear you if you believe that we could do better to help out the island let me hear you is that it i thought i was here with my fellow Borriqua. let me hear you that's all you got please we need to make our voices heard now today a positive thing is happening we're getting a fema package together But while other states, states are getting loans forgiven, like the flood insurance program, another debt is put on the island of Puerto Rico, $4.9 billion in debt. If you believe that we shouldn't be putting Puerto Rico in more debt than they already are, let me hear you right now. Let
8: Washington hear you right
2: now. If you believe that we should have helicopters flying Items like supplies water and food to these rural towns. Let me hear you. Let me hear you. Let Washington hear you And what we don't need is troublesome tweets kicking people while they're down we don't need jump shots of Water and other supplies patronizing people on the island. You know, I'm happy that the president went there. That's a good thing But we need action. We don't need videos hiding the truth That there is 80 to 90% of the people on the island without power. That there's 80 to 90% of the people on the island without cell phone service. And so we need you to not only be here. What? People are dying. Who cares
3: about cells?
9: Who cares about electricity? People are dying. I
2: absolutely agree with you. They are dying. Who here thinks we can do better and save lives in Puerto Rico? Let me hear you. So as you go out today, I need you to make sure to talk to all members of Congress. I need you to keep the pressure on the administration to save lives, to make sure that we have food for our elderly and our seniors, make sure that we have water. I need your help. Democrats need your help. Republicans need your help. So I'm so excited that you're here today, but we need you to continue the pressure, because if we stick together, we could get what we need, but right now it's falling woefully short. Unidos por Puerto Rico, let me hear you unidos por Puerto Rico, let me hear ya. One more time, with a passion in nuestra isla, let me hear ya, por Puerto Rico. ¡Wepa! El aplauso para el representante que nos lo, lo
7: levantó los espíritus, ¿no? Llevamos un ratito aquí. Yo pienso que están medio dormidos ustedes, pero todavía están aquí, ¿verdad?
2: Presente, Puerto Rico presente ante suyo para que vean lo que está sucediendo acá vamos a continuar con nuestros invitados especiales quiero recibir ahora Gretchen Sierra Sorita del National Hispanic Foundation for the Arts que también está con nosotros acá hola Gretchen
6: I am
9: here today representing the National Hispanic Foundation for the Arts an organization devoted promoting Latina representation in the entertainment industry the NHFA has strong Puerto Rican roots it was founded by Boricua actors Jimmy Smith and Cy Morales, Merel Julia, the widow of our beloved Raul Julia and also the fabulous Sonia Braga and the attorney Felix Sanchez I'm all the leadership of the NHFA has always been very very engaged with Puerto Rico and deeply cares about what is going on there now and what will happen in the future. I am also a founding member of the National Puerto Rican Agenda, a diaspora organization fighting for the interests and rights of the 9 million Puerto Ricans that live in the 50 states and the colony. One of the activities we did was marshal a letter drive, and as of now, 18,000 letters from Puerto Ricans and our allies have been sent to Congress and the President, and we're very proud of that move. We have all been bombarded with facts and figures pertaining to Hurricane Maria. For me, the one that most clearly stands out is the following. Of more than 13,000 hurricane events around the world since 1950, only 5 top Maria in their overall average intensity. I want you to let that sink in because when I read that, I cannot believe my eyes. This is the sixth most intense hurricane documented making landfall since 1950. By all measures, Hurricane Maria is an extraordinary event that cannot be solved by ordinary measures. The impact of Hurricane Maria is greater than Katrina, Sandy, and Harvey combined not only because of the intensity of the hurricane or the scope of the devastation, but because Puerto Rico's infrastructure and economy have been crippled for an 11-year recession. Estimates for destroyed infrastructure, lost revenue, and reconstruction run north of $90 billion. This is equivalent to Puerto Rico's gross domestic product. Therefore, the current arsenal of federal programs will not suffice. We need to approach this crisis creatively, holistically, and immediately. Every Puerto Rican in the island and mainland is fretting about the lack of normalcy. Our world is upside down. We do not know how long it will take to recover or whether we will recover at all. People are people are panicking. The Luis Puñoz Marín Airport is packed with Puerto Ricans temporarily moving to live with their families in the States while services are restored. Many will not return if they find jobs and the situation does not improve back home. People are dying. They are dying because they do not oxygen tanks and dialysis centers cannot operate without electricity. I lost two bedridden parents in the last three years. I cannot even begin to imagine what it's like to take care of sick or disabled people under these conditions. It is criminal. Yes. Businesses have been shut down for three weeks and many have already been forced to lay off employees. The tax base is vanishing right before our eyes. It is a time like these that the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico need to feel the steady, strong, generous head of the federal government to inspire confidence in the future. Yes.
0: Yes. Right.
9: To let them know that everything is going to be alright and that they can stay back home. That's right. Unless the message from Washington is heard loud and clear and immediately, those who can will pack up and leave. And those who can't will see their beloved island implode. And all of us, 9 million people, all of us, we will really know what
3: went down, and we will
2: not
7: forget.
3: You have been listening to Voices from the Unite. Puerto Rico rally held Thursday, October 12th at the U.S. Capitol. You heard members of Congress from New York, Lydia Velasquez and Jose Serrano, Florida Congressman Darren Soto, and Gretchen Sierra Zarito from the National Hispanic Foundation for the Arts. We'll be right back with a chat with Michelle Roberts of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance. Stay with us.
4: Bye, give me nothing, open up the door.
3: Is James Brown on On the Ground, on the ground Voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now, this week, the death toll in Puerto Rico continues to rise, and the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. There are wildfires in California, and there's a death toll climbing there. In addition, people in Florida and Texas are still uh, recovering from Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. And then, in spite of all that, we had the EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt taking moves to repeal the Clean Power Act, which was put into place uh, during the Obama administration to cut greenhouse emissions. And joining me right now on the line to discuss this is Michelle Roberts, our environmental justice producer, who's also co coordinator of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance. Welcome back to the show, Michelle.
6: Thank you, Esther.
3: Now, tell me about this. I know that the Clean Power Plan was controversial because many in the environmental justice community didn't feel it was going far enough in terms of dealing with the toxins as well as greenhouse emissions, but apparently uh, this move to repeal it is still seen very negatively in the environmental justice community
6: absolutely absolutely thank you esther and as we say a half a loaf is better than none and so while environmental justice communities had challenges with the gaps that were in there we were at least able to push to try to get some attention um, paid to the fact that we needed to address legacy pollution and that The um, Clean Power Plan needed to go further. We were even able to engage and begin to engage our environmental friends um, and conservation friends, if you will, as as folks call the big green groups, to also understand by bringing together a process of bringing those grassroots groups and voices to the forefront uh, to address uh, the needs for us going stronger.
3: Now, I think related to me, I have to ask you to follow up for us on what is actually happening in Texas, because I think that some people are afraid that Puerto Rico is going to become a forgotten story. I'm concerned about Texas becoming a forgotten story. All the people who are living in the aftermath of these Superfund sites being flooded, can you give us any update on what's happening in Beaumont, what's happening in Port Arthur and in Houston and and people
6: impacted there. Sure. Um, that is another piece. And let us also add um, the communities of Pasagula um, and Biloxi, Mississippi, who were recently impacted by Hurricane Date. And that was a blip on many people's screen, and they're dealing with flooding. And so all of this flooding is also included, as you say, super fun sites. There were 13, to be exact, in Houston alone. And let's not forget, on our show, on on the ground show, we reported on the budget cuts that, yet again, Scott Pruitt had um, offered up and Donald Trump approved um, where they slashed and burned funding. Well, there was no funding for Superfund to begin with. It was bankrupt. But beyond that, they cut the superfund program, they cut the enforcement program, they moved the environmental justice uh program out of the office of the administrator and into a policy office. So any and all types of protections for people of color who are living in disparate means, like you said, in Port Arthur and Beaumont and uh, Houston are really up against it right now. They themselves have to prove their own cases in which they are doing with advocates and allies by uh, doing water testings and soil sampling.
3: I don't understand. If the government knows it has a super fun site, and I actually hate that word because it sounds like something good. You know what I mean? Super fun. You know, we're talking about toxic chemicals. I mean, there was this alphabet soup of toxins that we had on a recent show, and it should be the government's responsibility to show that you're not harmed. I mean, I kind of want to know that people are able to go to like a health center or to get their children tested, to get their water tested, to make sure that they're okay, that they are actually in some kind of regimen of being monitored. If you're exposed to dioxin, I mean, why do you have to prove that you're uh, exposed to something when the government knows that the site is flooded and this toxic soup has gone through people's neighborhoods?
6: Absolutely right. What is and what actually works, uh, it, it's actually in reverse, Esther, because legally, legally, um, and this was under from the, and this was our our challenge from from Hurricane Katrina, legally when these disasters occur, these quote natural disasters occur, the government could relax what they call the Davis-Bacon Act, and they can relax and waive any and all environmental laws to, as they say, hurry up and get in to respond to the crisis, if you will. So these facilities are actually flaring off pollution. That just basically gives them the the go-ahead, the green light, as folks in, in Houston said, even before Harvey came in, before the winds of Harvey even hit, uh, people said that, that parts of the Houston Ship Channel and beyond looked like the city of New York, if you will, with all of these glaring lights, but actually they were flames on the industries where they were flaring off, burning off the pollution before they did an automatic shutdown because God forbid they lose the product because. At the end of the day, it is about the bottom line. And what they give this area of the country so much leverage and deference to is the fact that Houston provides, or in that area, provides 60% of the nation's oil and gas uh reserves and so therefore it's a it's a major business and unfortunately by law people are are able to be at risk and what we have found in our studies and our works um, in the Houston ship channel and the community of Manchester and others that race And then income play a factor when you are within a one-mile radius of harm's way.
3: Yeah, now I understand that the Trump administration and the EPA is actually being sued by, uh, I think, Massachusetts and New York. And I also understand that uh, Pruitt's ultimate, I guess, goal of eliminating this plan may be in jeopardy because it was designed to adhere to the Clean Air Act. And as long as the Clean Air Act is in in place, he has to prove that that there w- there won't be harm by having these emissions. Mm-hmm.
6: That's correct. And so, therefore, what they've done again: if you are completely um, diminishing your departments. And the authorities in your departments and working with states to equally do the same, um, then it makes it even harder and puts the burden even more on the average person to actually make the case. We had mayors and states who were at least, as we said, while environmental justice communities may not have fully agreed with the full components of the Clean Power Plan and felt that there were missing pieces, at least these communities were beginning to, in some places, work with their cities and mayors and states to find ways to address those gaps. Right Right now with these threats, the way that these threats are, this is where it's hard. We're talking about a person who was a former attorney general who sued the EPA several times to relax laws, based on the fact that even though we had the science that showed that there were high rates of asthma, cancers, heart diseases, and other things, this is a person who still utilized the court system to say that we should still relax the uh, pollution uh, rates and laws.
3: Yeah, you're talking about Pruitt, and, and he came from Oklahoma, which is beset by uh, earthquakes now, which in the past they never had these kind of, kind of earthquakes, but now it's earthquake central uh, because of all the fracking. So I have to wrap this up. But Jen, so, what are environmental justice advocates doing right now, and communities doing in response to this this move to repeal the Clean Power Act? And you know what what can happen going forward?
6: Well, what communities are doing and what. Uh, environmental justice communities and their allies and, act, and activists are doing those working together to educate, first of all, our communities on the issues uh, and the connections of environmental justice to that of the climate crisis. And then those communities are taking power into their own hands by creating their own plans, hopefully working along together with their local government, local, state, and regional governments to address ways in which we create a more just, energy democracy, a more just environment and climate policy, even in the face of the deniers. And so that's where we are right now, in addition to pushing for a more just recovery process that's based on a process such as one under the UN Internal Displacement um, Guidelines. Because by doing that and by implementing more just policies from a justice-based perspective, with communities at the table, that is how we make effective change. So it may be bleak and dark right now, as people may think, but when it gets down to those who are at the baseline of resistance, what better time than now for us to educate our people, mobilize, agitate, and activate?
3: Well, we'll have to follow up around the United Nations and, and those types of rules being, you know, looked at and being applied to this situation. That sounds really, you know, exciting and it sounds like something we definitely want to follow in the future. I've been speaking with Michelle Roberts, our environmental justice producer for On the Ground, and also the co-coordinator of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance. Thank you, Michelle.
6: Thank you, Esther.
3: And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest, Gerald Horn. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest, Gerald Horn. And thanks to Chantel James for her reporting and Michelle Roberts. And thanks to News to Share for their coverage of the Unite Puerto Rico rally. And thank you for listening. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Show. I'm Esther Revere, reminding you as always to keep raising your voice. Peace.